0: Well, that's a bit of a spicy and sassy passage of Scripture, isn't it? We'll talk a little bit more about why Paul is so spicy and sassy uh, as we make our way through this text together this morning. But maybe first, before we do that, we should pause and recognize that we are pausing in our sermon series through the book of Matthew to talk for one week today about the Lord's Supper. And later in our service, we will take the Lord's Supper, which is our practice every Sunday, but we'll take it in a slightly different way. We'll distribute the bread and the cups in a different way than we normally do, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. But why? Why do things a little bit differently and why take a Sunday sermon to talk about the Lord's Supper. Well, let me start by saying this has been a really cool year. God has brought together two congregations into one congregation, and I thank God for that. This is a big deal kind of thing. I'm not going to look back at 2023 and say, eh, whatever, I'll look back at this year and say this was a sweet and meaningful year. And to my brothers and sisters from an Advent background, I just want to say it is a great privilege and a great honor to count you as sisters and brothers in the Lord. I was debating even up to about 30 seconds ago whether I would start mentioning names or not because I'm worried I might spend five minutes and tear up or something like that. But I think it's worth doing for a second. I've been inspired this year. Quite sincerely, I've been inspired by Steve Thixton's example of faith. In saying what matters the most is not the sign that's out there by the street. It's not the name that's on the sign that's out there in the street. And I've been inspired this year by women like Junia and Lavonne Who have taken steps of faith. Uh, to build new friendships. To love other people. Not just to kind of say I've got plenty of friends and I'm doing just fine, but to lean into new relationships and to spread the love of the Lord even further by doing so. I've been inspired by the tireless servanthood of Jan and Carol that I witnessed throughout the week around the building here. I've been inspired by the genuine concern for other people and their well-being that I see in women like Sandy and Beth And Mitzi, I've been inspired to watch the tearful care of Kevin and Sandy and of Tori and their kids um, as they helped Marty transition to a new home recently. I've been blessed to feel like there are men my dad's age Worshiping here on Sundays, men like Steve and Larry and Leon and Dave, men who walk with genuine steadfastness and a kind of emotional maturity that gives me something I want to grow into across the years. A kind of emotional maturity that isn't afraid of sadness, but a kind of emotional stability that isn't sunk by sadness either. These are men who are already making me stronger in my own journey of faith. I'm not even going to start saying anything about how I've enjoyed working closely alongside Sandy and Monty. And Matt, and there's probably a dozen other names I could mention as well, brothers and sisters from an Advent background, I want you to know that it is an honor to count you as brothers and sisters in the faith. It's an honor to worship with you week after week. And from before that first Sunday, when we started worshiping together, we knew that one of the biggest kind of challenges in bringing our two congregations together uh, we heard that one of the things that would feel the most different would be related to taking the lord's supper every week and the way that we take the lord's supper every week and the way that we distribute the bread and the cups and because i love and respect these dear brothers and sisters so much i've I've taken that seriously and I've carried it on my heart. And I told them, I told these brothers and sisters before the first Sunday that we began worshiping together as one congregation that I gave them kind of two commitments. Commitment number one, I said, later on this year, I'll do a little bit of teaching about the Lord's Supper And because the way that we do it, the way that we distribute the bread and the cups is not the most important thing, we'll change the way that we do that from time to time. And there will be Sundays or other services where we can distribute the bread and the cups in a way that will feel more familiar from your background. I made that commitment to them. And I also told them, we're going to do our best just to kind of build some stability Over the first couple of weeks and over the first couple of months together. And so while we don't want it just to become routine, we want it to be kind of reliable. We want it to kind of be smooth the way that things go. Those were the two commitments that we made. And let me tell you how this started out. The very first Sunday that we worshipped together, which was like a big deal Sunday. And there was all kinds of planning that went into it. A dear sister in this church decided that after we'd been worshiping together for like 20 years or whatever, and we've used like the same kind of bread for the elements over and over and over, a dear sister who I love, and I checked with her to make sure I could share this story, she decided that was the perfect Sunday to buy some kind of tortilla instead of regular bread. And so everybody came to the front that very first Sunday when the nerves are kind of high and the emotions are, we're already kind of feeling like what's going on here and people come to the front and people are like, what is this tortilla stuff I'm eating? And then I went to my small group that week and like everybody in my small group, and if you're a brother or sister from an Advent background, please believe these friends of mine in my small group, they love you. But everybody in my small group was like, was that tortilla stuff like what the Advent people use? Because that was gross. And brothers and sisters from an Advent background who know where my office is right over here, they came by and they knocked on the door and they were like, listen, there's a lot we're dealing with, but do we have to do that tortilla stuff? You guys are terrible at this. And all of a sudden, everybody's like blaming each other. And I'm just telling everybody, like, don't worry, we got this. We're going to be okay. And do you all remember what happened the next week? That was the week with the soggy bread. I'm not even you guys remember what I'm talking about like two old trays like again, we've been doing this for 20 years like we're not rookie rookies we can fill trays full of bread but for the first time in 20 years somehow we got like water spilled on the bread and so people are trying to take this mush out of their cups To take the Lord's Supper. And it was a complete and utter distraction. And so then we're just like, time out. Let's just do it a different way. Let's just use the bread that our brothers and sisters from Advent have been using. Because we can't get this straight. So then on the third Sunday, we got the bread that our brothers and sisters from Advent have been using. It was like stored in the freezer or something. We got it. We baked it. It looked perfect. We cut it into squares, but then the squares were too big to fit in the cups. And so then I'm like watching people over here, like trying to get the bread to fall out of the cup. And week by week, I'm over here in the front row like, dear Lord, please hold us together despite us, despite us. And then there was the week where we served apple juice instead of grape juice. It's like the Bible says it's supposed to be the fruit of the vine. And we're like, apples will do. And so if you are still here and you have persevered this far I respect you for your faithfulness for your love for your patience for your long suffering in this journey that we've been on together I mean I it sounds like a joke but like I think the enemy was after us in this stuff right? Because if I'm the enemy, I'm really interested in people coming to church and thinking less about the meaning of the bread and the cup and more about the way it tastes or other things that don't matter nearly as much as what it's all about. So with genuine encouragement and appreciation, for those of you who have persevered through our mistakes and failures this year, I want to take a few minutes and lead us in thinking about the New Testament's longest passage about how to take the Lord's Supper. And when I say this is the New Testament's Longest passage about how to take the Lord's Supper. We could probably also say this is the New Testament's only passage about how a church should take the Lord's Supper. It's the only significant teaching about this aside from the teachings of Jesus himself recorded in the Gospels. Related to his own last supper on the night when he was betrayed. So we're going to take some time and we're going to pay attention to what the Bible itself, what the New Testament wants to say to us about how we should take the Lord's Supper, how we should celebrate the Lord's Supper together as a church. And in order to learn what the Lord wants to teach us about how to celebrate the Lord's Supper in the way that the Lord himself wants us to celebrate the Lord's Supper, in order to do so, we're going to follow the way that this passage unfolds, which goes like this. First of all, there is a problem identified by the New Testament, and then two priorities given by the New Testament. We'll begin with the problem that is identified in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verses 17 through 22 as we seek to learn something about how to take the Lord's Supper, how to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. We'll begin with the problem that's described in 1 Corinthians 11:17 through 22. The problem begins like this. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Can someone say, ouch? Because that's like, if you're in, if you're there then, listening to this letter when it's first read, the response is not, wow, that's sweet, The response is, ouch. He just said that with respect to their church services, they do more harm than good. It would have been better to stay home than not get together at all. Ouch. Now, let me be crystal clear from the beginning in case some of you are getting nervous about where we're going. Here's part of what I want to say even if we sometimes mess up the bread, (laughs) I'm pretty sure that when we get together, it is for the better. And so we're light years ahead of where the church in Corinth was when they first received this letter. But if we want to learn what the New Testament has to teach us, we'll be wise to pay attention to how the New Testament diagnoses the problem... That leads Paul, the apostle, to write to this church in the city of Corinth and say to them, In the following instructions, I don't commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Why is it that he would say that? The answer is found in verse 18. It's because in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are, what's the word there? Divisions. When you come together, there are divisions among you. The problem in the city of Corinth, as the church gathered together, the great problem in their celebration of the Lord's Supper was division. If you start reading the book of 1 Corinthians back in the very beginning of this letter to the Corinthian church, very quickly you run into the problem of division. Paul names the problem of division in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, explaining how some people in the Corinthian church are divided over preferred teachers or divided over preferred teaching styles. So one of them is like, I want to follow Cephas. He's really great. And others are like, nah, I'm into Paul. And others are like, no, I love Apollos. Like, that guy is powerful. And then you can imagine the smug sense of superiority in that group that said to the others, I follow Jesus. <laughs> This church is divided over favorite teachers and different teaching styles. But in addition to that, this church was divided in ways that reflected divisions in the culture around them. This church was divided between poorer and richer. Between Jewish people and Greek people. There were divisions between those who had social status and those who did not have a high social status. And of course, Paul's answer to that problem back in first Corinthians chapter one is to say, don't you realize how many of you were poor, how many of you were poorly educated, how many of you were not socially impressive when the Lord found you, but the Lord chose what's weak. He blames God. (laughs) He says, you don't like people in your congregation because they're not rich enough for you, cool enough for you, or educated enough for you. God's the one who chose them to be a part of this thing. This problem of division in the church, divisions over teaching and teaching styles, divisions that reflect divisions in the culture around them, it's dividing the church. And that's true, apparently, when they get together for what they call the Lord's Supper. A New Testament scholar named D.A. Carson kind of puts the story together like this for us. He points out that when the early church gathered on the first day of the week, they lived in a culture, in a society, in a place in time when people did not work a five-day work week and get two days off for the weekends. In order to gather together on the first day of the week, Meant doing church gathering on a work day, either very early in the morning before work starts, or fairly late in the evening after the day's work is done. It seems that the church in Corinth gathered together in the evening at the end of their work day on the first day of the week, but this gave an opportunity for so, social and cultural kinds of divisions to get amplified and magnified. Because in the church in Corinth, there were some who were very rich and some who were very poor. And it would appear that who would arrive first at the end of the workday? The wealthy folks. They come at the end of their work day, much earlier than the servants and the tradespeople are able to make it. They come with a big old basket of delicious foods, expensive and fine foods that they're going to eat before the service starts. They bring some wine with them, maybe some Merlot or Syrah or Pinot Grigio. And they sit down and they begin eating with the other wealthy folks in the church. They eat their fine foods. They drain the bottle of Merlot. They start working their way through the Syrah. They start pouring the Pinot Grigio. And now the tradespeople start to show up. The folks who have been working as a blacksmith or something like that and selling their wares out in the marketplace. They can't afford. Bottles of wine to bring with them, but they brought a fine meal at the end of a work day and they sit down and they begin eating as well. But who hasn't made it yet? Servants, bondservants, slaves. As Christianity spread in the first century, the largest demographic perhaps seems to have been those who were very poor. Perhaps especially those who were slaves or bondservants. They can't leave their work day until their boss says, you're good to go. They've got to finish the evening meal in the household they work at. They've got to finish all of the household chores. They've got to make sure that everything is packed up and cleaned up and put away for the day. They've got to make sure the kids are put in bed. They've got to make sure everything is done and then they can head out for the church service. And of course, they can't afford any wine at all, probably to bring with them. No fancy foods. And they come into the gathering, and they find that here's a bunch of rich people already a little bit buzzed from the bottles of wine they've been consuming. And here are the rich folks sitting back and patting their bellies saying, wow, wasn't that delicious? What did you bring? Oh, you didn't bring anything? We might have a little bit of wine left for you. They're shaming. They're shaming the poor. Paul's reply. Paul's reply is, if this is how the church functions when the church gets together for the Lord's Supper, Paul's reply is to say rather sharply, that is not the Lord's Supper that you are eating. That might be how the world out there does its meals with divisions along economic lines and social lines and ethnic lines and and divisions and divisions and divisions. But that's not how the Lord's Supper should work. So when you get together, it's doing more harm than good. And you might be eating, you might be drinking. But you're not eating and drinking the Lord's Supper when you gather. And then these stinging words. Do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. You see, taking the Lord's Supper while unrepentantly harboring division and discord and mirroring the world's divisions and distinctions, Paul says this is a serious problem. That's the problem that the New Testament diagnoses Related to the Lord's Supper. It's a problem of taking the Lord's Supper. While harboring unrepentant divisions. Within the church. But in response to that. Paul names two priorities. Two priorities that can get even an off track church. Back on track. When it comes to celebrating The Lord's Supper. And we're going to take some time and pay attention to each of these significant priorities. Priority number one is this. I would describe it as hope in Christ. How does the Lord want us to take the Lord's Supper? Well, first of all, not with divisions. But secondly, with hope in Christ. Look with me, if you would, at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 26. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. These words are very familiar to people who have been going to church for very long at all. But what is there packed into these words that remind us of the importance of taking the Lord's Supper with our hope in Christ? Let me point to just a couple aspects of this hope in Christ that we see here. First of all, this reminds us that when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we are celebrating a connection with the past. The Lord's Supper stretches us beyond ourselves and beyond our current moment in life and it makes a connection between us here now and what has happened in the past. On the night when He was betrayed. The Lord's Supper is meant to link our life stories in with that great story. That great story of a night, of the night when our Lord Jesus was celebrating a Passover feast. He was celebrating a meal with his followers. A meal which itself pointed back to the past. A meal which itself was meant to make a connection with the past redeeming work of the Lord through which he had set his people free and brought them out from slavery. In order to know Him and worship Him and dwell near to their Redeemer. And while He was celebrating that meal, He was betrayed. And this is presented in all of the four New Testament Gospels as kind of the domino that falls, that sets all the other dominoes in motion, leading up to the sacrificial death of our Lord Himself. He presents to his disciples bread and wine. Things that would have been common staples of a Middle Eastern diet. Ordinary foods. Ordinary foods that would have been part of any Passover celebration. But we notice also what he doesn't draw their attention to. The thing that is kind of the most famous part of a Passover celebration. The lamb. The lamb which was meant to remind those celebrating this past redeeming work of the Lord. Of how the Lord had accepted the sacrifice of a lamb without blemish. And for every house where the blood of the lamb was painted over the doorpost. They would go free. So the lamb is the centerpiece of this meal. But why no lamb? Why only the bread? Why only the wine? Because Jesus himself is the lamb. Not just a lamb, one among many. But the lamb to whom every other sacrifice in the history of God's people has ever pointed is Him. He came to accomplish once for all time what all of the Passover represented. He came to accomplish once for all time every sacrifice that would ever be needed. And now He takes bread and breaks it. And says, as often as you eat this bread. He blesses it. He breaks it. He gives it. And he says, do this in remembrance. Linking your life story in. With the past history of his redeeming work on our behalf. His redeeming work which is so fully complete that no sacrifice will ever again be needed in order to fully reconcile you and me and all who live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave Himself for us. No other sacrifice will ever be needed for our reconciliation with God. Why? Because of what He has accomplished. Because it is finished. Part of this hope in Christ that we are meant to experience in the Lord's Supper comes with seeing our lives connected with the past. But there's also part of the Lord's Supper that is meant to help us see how our lives are connected with something yet to come in the future. Notice how Jesus wraps up what we call the words of institution here. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until what? He comes. The Lord's Supper is meant to stir in us hope in Christ, not only because we're remembering the finished, His finished work in the past, but also because we're looking forward in hopeful anticipation to the fact that there is a day coming. On that night when he was betrayed, he held up that cup of the new covenant and he told his followers, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine again until I drink it with you new in the kingdom of heaven. Even on that night when he was betrayed, he was seeking to help his followers just as God wants us as followers of Jesus today to see our lives connected in not only with his past redeeming work, but connected in with a hope and a future. A hope. That his work is not yet done, a hope that he will return. This hope in Christ That is meant to stir within our souls. That is meant to be strengthened and fortified. As we take the Lord's Supper, it is meant to create within us a connection with the past. A connection with the future. And maybe most deeply, a connection with Him. You know what Jesus says, do this in remembrance. Not just of something that happened. Not just of something that will happen. Do this in remembrance of me. The Lord's Supper is not just about remembering past events or anticipating future events. At the middle of the Lord's celebration is a someone. Our Lord Jesus himself. We describe taking the Lord's Supper as taking communion. Communion is relationship fellowship kind of language why do we call it that because as christians we believe that when we take the lord's supper we believe that the lord himself is here with us there's a fellowship that we're meant to experience with him and when we talk about our theology of this um if you've been around for a while you've heard me use this analogy but I sometimes talk about it as, um, as the way that a handshake not only symbolizes something, but it solidifies something, right? If two people shake hands, maybe two dignitaries get together and they shake hands and they wave and smile at the camera, that signifies, it symbolizes some kind of goodwill, right? But when you see your friends at the church gathering on Sunday... And as fellas, when we cup hands and we give each other a bro hug. Listen, that's more than just a symbol. It's solidifying something, isn't it? It's strengthening something within us. And in the same way, when the Lord blessed bread and broke it. And gave it that bread which is blessed and broken and given and placed into the palm of our hands. It symbolizes something. It reminds us of a past finished event. It points us to a future event. But more than just symbolizing, it is given to strengthen something within us, to solidify within us, to strengthen us for the journey yet ahead. One day this week, I sat down to study 1 Corinthians 11 while I was having just a crummy day. I was flat out exhausted, like way beyond normal. I was tired. I was emotionally drained. Do you know what I mean by that? It, it, it like wasn't even so much that I was in a bad mood. It was I was so tired. I didn't even feel like I had a mood left. I was flat out exhausted, tired, worn down. There was little joy. And I sat down and I began some of my work studying First Corinthians eleven. And I was given this sweet reminder that Jesus has a plan for fickle disciples like me. Jesus has multiple strategies, not just one. But Jesus has in mind people like me who run out, who run dry, who run thin who feel like the tank is on empty sometimes, who feel weak and worn down. And Jesus loved us so much that he gave himself for us. How will he who gave up not only his own son, how will he not give us all things that we need? And where do we find that spiritual strength that we need? Listen, in a variety of ways, not just one. But do you know one of the ways that the Lord provides the strength, the spiritual strength and nourishment that we need week by week? Through the bread, which is blessed, broken, and given for us. Through the cup, which represents a new covenant secured by nothing less Than the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And brothers and sisters. if If you have shown up today. Feeling spiritually on empty. I have good news for you. The Lord has you in his sight. And he's prepared before us. Maybe not the ultimate feast. There's a wedding supper of the lamb yet to come. But he's prepared before us some spiritual appetizers. Fit for the occasion. Week by week that can rest in the palm of our hands. That we can chew and sip and eat and drink. And so find not much physical nourishment. Let's be honest. But spiritual strength for the journey up ahead. How should we take the Lord's Supper? We should take it with hope in Christ, which involves a connection with the past, a connection with the future, and also a strengthening connection with Him right now, today. And week by week, a strengthening connection for sinful, straying, weak, and fickle people like me. How should we take the Lord's Supper? We should take it with hope in Christ, Which creates this connection with the past, this connection with the future, and this connection with him. And a fourth thing I want to mention from these verses specifically is that it also creates a connection with one another. Sometimes this is hidden to our eyes, but it's actually in these verses that we've been looking at for the last few minutes. It's hidden because in English we have a problem. And the problem is that we have one word, you, which can either refer to you as an individual or, as we would say in Texas, y'all as a group. So Texans have fixed the problem for the rest of us, but we're still adapting in our translations. Most other languages, like Spanish, if you know Spanish, like the Greek language that the letter to the Corinthians was written in, Most other languages have ways of distinguishing a difference between saying you as an individual and y'all as a group. And here's what I want to point out to you. If we hear this letter read in the original language, and if we translate it most accurately, this is what it sounds like. I received from the Lord what I also delivered to y'all, that on... That the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for y'all. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this, y'all, as often as y'all drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as y'all eat this bread and drink this cup, y'all proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. i got an amen for my brother from Texas. This is his one-year wedding anniversary also. So happy anniversary and happy Texas Day to you. Listen, we need brothers and sisters from Texas to help us understand this. The Lord's Supper, as it was meant to be understood, is not just about how I individually can experience hope in Christ. It's about how we together can celebrate His provision for us. So how should we celebrate the Lord's Supper? We should celebrate it with hope in Christ Christ. And secondly, I'll do this a little more quickly. We should also do it in harmony with the body of Christ. Not only with hope in Christ, but with harmony within the body of Christ. This is what's emphasized in that last paragraph from verses 27 down to verse 34. Which tells us the next time you take the Lord's Supper, you should examine yourself you say, wait a second, I thought we were talking about how this is a y'all thing. And then you just said I should do self-examination. Did we just go from y'all back to me? Only sort of. Because before we get to here now, we need to think about what is meant for them then. What did for them then, what did they need to think about as they were examining themselves related to the Lord's Supper? needed to examine their relationships with other believers. They needed to examine their fellowship with one another. They needed to examine how they had allowed the divisions of the world to creep into the church of Jesus Christ. And the Lord's Supper needed to be an opportunity to sit back and say, Whoa, these two things don't fit. These two things, the divisions of the world... And the message of Christ who gave Himself for us. These things don't fit together. So there's an examination that's needed. An examination that is important in order to protect us even from experience the Lord's judgment. To protect us from eating and drinking judgment on ourselves. This text says... Now, this text has some eye-opening examples of that. You know, in the New Testament, there's a description of how Ananias and Sapphira lied to God and they die that day. The Lord was not messing around. And here's the thing. um, I don't expect everybody today who lies to the Lord to get struck dead. I don't know why. In a similar way, I couldn't tell you so-and-so died because he was eating the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. The Lord doesn't seem to strike people dead on Sundays for taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. doesn't seem to do that. I don't know why. But this is the kind of seriousness that 1 Corinthians 11 gives us. Related to how seriously we should take the Lord's Supper. Now when I say seriously, I don't mean you need to be sad and grumpy looking while you take it. There should be hope and joy overflowing in our celebration of the Lord's Supper. But there should be a seriousness that that grows out of. It's not a paper thin plastic kind of happiness. Where we just slap a smile on the face and say, I'm good, you're good, we're all good, isn't this happy? There's a seriousness underneath the gladness and the hope. A seriousness that calls us, when we take the Lord's Supper, to examine our own hearts. And specifically, to examine our relationships with others in the body of Christ. This week, in the middle of the week, I was studying this passage with a few brothers and sisters from this congregation, and Chris Rogers was there, and Chris was looking at this stuff with me and with us there at the table, and Chris summarized the the point well when he said, wait, so if Jesus were here at this table with us, I'd have a really hard time still being mad at Matt. And I think that hits the nail on the head when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, if it's the Lord's Supper, then when we sit down and receive the bread and the cup together, when we sit down at the Lord's own table, when we come to Him and we receive the bread, which is blessed and broken and given, and we receive the cup, which represents a new covenant in His blood, it should get harder for us to still be mad at fill-in-the-blank person here in this room. Or in the body of Christ. It should lead us to a kind of self examination, but not a self examination that leads many of us to say, you know what? I messed up with one thing this week. I better not take the Lord's Supper. Why do I say that? Because of the way the text itself works. Notice this verse 28. Let a person examine himself and so eat the bread and drink the cup. The goal of self-examination is not that most of us should recognize, you know what, I messed up at some point this week, I better not touch it. The goal is that through examination of our own hearts and lives, we would see what's out of sync with the Lord and His love for us. And through repentance... And faith, we come afresh and anew together to the table. And so we eat and we drink as a celebration of our harmony together. Maybe not a harmony that we'd experience apart from Christ, but a harmony that we discover at the foot of his cross. Here's how one theologian, it's a bit of a longer quote, but here's how one theologian Describes this issue. He says, In a broken and fragmented world, the church is called to be the first fruits of a new creation by embodying a reconciled community. And the way we begin to learn that is at the communion table. The habits and practices of examination and reconciliation that are part of the Eucharist, it's a kind of fancy term for the Thanksgiving or the Lord's Supper or communion. The the practices of examination and reconciliation that are part of the Eucharist are like training wheels meant to let us try out forgiveness and reconciliation. And in this respect, the Eucharist is just a picture of what the church is called to be as the new humanity. A community that gathers irrespective of preferences. A community that gathers irrespective of taste. A community that gathers irrespective of class. Or ethnicity. In order to pursue a common good together. And then I love this way that he puts it. I often tell my children that one of the reasons we go to church is to learn to love people we don't really like that much. (laughs) One of the reasons we go to church is to learn to love people we don't really like that much. People we find irritating. Odd. Who grate on our nerves. The feeling is certainly mutual, I'm sure. And sometimes we will even have to work through our frustration and hurts when we fail one another and disappoint one another. The communion table is a historic catalyst for practices of reconciliation. This is not to claim that we accomplish perfect reconciliation or that somehow the Eucharist magically undoes injustices we've experienced or committed in the past. Rather, the claim is that liturgical practices of reconciliation and forgiveness constitute a training ground for making a start and the demand that we do make a start. How should we celebrate the Lord's Supper? I can summarize it for you like this. We should celebrate it without divisions among us. We should celebrate it with hope in Christ. Hope that overflows in gratitude and praise as we consider our connection with Christ's finished work and our connection with His future redemption and our connection with Him And one another right now. We should do it with hope in Christ. And we should do it in harmony with one another. Which is to say. If you are wondering if you are ready to take the Lord's Supper today. Here are two questions you might ask. And so eat and drink. Number one. Are you living in harmony? So far as it depends upon you. Are you living in harmony with your brothers and sisters in Christ? Are there divisions between you and brothers and sisters in Christ? Divisions that you've built and perpetuated? Divisions that you have unrepentantly fed into? The Lord's table is an invitation to come in repentance before him today. And say afresh, what unites us is far greater than what out in the world could divide us. And a second question. Have you set your hope in Christ? Are you living in harmony with the body of Christ? Have you set your hope on Christ? If so then the Lord has provided for us the appetizers of His feast today. Our hope is in Christ. Crucified. Risen. Returning. And here today with us. And when we're living in harmony with His body as a picture of the kingdom that is coming then the Lord sets before us His table full of these appetizers of the fuller meal, the fuller feast, the fuller celebration that is to come. And He sets this in front of us for our good, for the strengthening of our bonds together as His family, and for the strengthening of our hope as we keep on proclaiming the good news of His death until He returns. At this time, I want to invite...